Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 361 with Matt Polson of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder fam, hope you're doing well. Nathan here. Welcome back to another episode. So today's guest is Matt Paulson, and he's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Amaze. Now, you might have seen them around. They're an online fundraising platform that support causes by offering once-in-a-lifetime experiences and some of these experiences, like they partner with all sorts of influential figures like George Clooney or like Michelle Obama, and they do these crazy things, right? Like it's it's really, really cool. It's an incredible business model. And in this interview, like Matt goes through with me like their business model, like how they've gate crashed like charity events, like pitch people like Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad and like how he found himself at the Vatican with the Pope. Like this is an incredible story. He also talks to me about like a near-death experience around like, yeah, I'll leave it with you, but how that's changed his whole perspective on life and how he started this company um, and how he's been going since, you know, everything that happened um, and really how Matt is just like revolutionizing the way we do entrepreneurship. So you're going to learn about his near-death experience and how he recovered, how it affected his family career and why it's been a catalyst for reassessing life. Uh, Amaze's business model, how they work the finances, um, how they work with talent, which I think more and more as time goes on, you know, with the creator economy, talent is is where it's at. Like founder I see is a talent-based business. So I really go deep on that. 
And then also the difficult decisions to let go of 25% of their workforce just three years into closing a Series B funding. So look, there's tons here. This is one of my favorite interviews. This was awesome. You guys don't want to miss this. All right. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do leave us a review on any of the channels that you're listening to, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, please. It just helps us more than you can imagine. All right, now let's jump to the show. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Nathan. I love what you're putting out there. And it's fun to be connected in LA and Melbourne. Um, so how did I get my job? The Omaze was started by me and my buddy, his name was Ryan, and we went to college together. And we came down to LA to get into entertainment, specifically focused on cause content. Actually, I should back up. Like what Omaze does is we raise money and awareness for charity by offering the chance to win once in a lifetime experiences. So we've done everything from be mentored by Michelle Obama to ride in the tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger and crush things to win a Lamborghini where Pope Francis hands you the keys, which was probably the, the craziest one we've ever did. I done, I had to go to the Vatican and pitch Pope Francis, which was, was pretty surreal. Um, crazy. But yeah, but back to how we started. So when we were in school, you know, it was a very inspiring time and went to this event that Magic Johnson was hosting for the Boys and Girls Club where he was auctioning off the chance to play basketball with him and go to a Lakers game. But it was one of those things that was only available to the high net worth individuals sitting in the room. And we were in the room, but not high net worth individuals. We were like the guys who get invited last minute to you know fill the table. So we sat and watched as the auction went up to $15,000 and we couldn't afford to participate, but Magic was our childhood hero. There's nothing we would rather do than play basketball with Magic, even today. And so when we were driving home, we said, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Magic has fans around the world, not just in that room. And in fact, the people who can't afford to be in that room probably care a lot more about meeting him than those who can. So if we make it available to all of them online for the chance to win, you can raise so much more money so much more awareness, open up a whole new donor base. Yeah, I see. So that's how you guys started. And something that we, we were told about you, which is crazy, is around your near-death experience. And that really changed things for you, right? Yeah, I, I clinically died just over two years ago. Um, and what happened was when I was born, my stomach was twisted in a knot. And the scar tissue from the surgery, I was supposed to die when I was born and the scar tissue from the surgery broke off all these years later, created a bowel obstruction. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I just knew my stomach was hurting. So I called my buddy and said, Hey, throwing a dinner party tonight. And, uh, you know, I want to be able to, I want to be able to do that. But, uh, but I'm in pain. He said, you should go to the hospital. Um, your appendix might be bursting. So went to the hospital. They did all these tests. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Our COO at the time, Helen, came because we were supposed to be meeting. My parents came. And, you know, after a whole day of experiments, they said, look, we can't figure out what this is. So we're going to send you guys home. We're going to keep Matt overnight. And if he's not doing better in the morning, then we'll do surgery then. 
so Helen drove home to her, her house and it was probably 11 o'clock at this point. She pulls into her driveway and something is telling her not to get out of the car, not to go inside, to go back to the hospital. And Helen is, you know, a COO. She's very serious. She's British. She's not like a Venice Beach, listen to the cosmos type person. So it was very out of character for her, but the voice was undeniable. So she drove back. And if she hadn't driven back, I would have died 45 minutes later um, because my blood pressure had plummeted and the machines had not alerted the nurse. And so Helen came in and she knew her way around. She'd been in the hospital with her grandmother. So she kind of knew what was what. And she went and got the doctor and said, this looks really bad is, you know, this can't be right. And the doctor came in and took one look and saw that I was no longer getting oxygen to my brain. And so she called in a crash team, rushed me down to surgery. I came out of surgery and they said to my mom, the good news is we figured out what it is. It's bowel obstruction. Bad news is he's in critical condition. His heart rate is continuing to plummet and we don't know why. And so then a couple hours pass, my mom goes downstairs to get my dad and my brother and she hears over the loudspeaker, code blue in room 437. And my mom works in a hospital, so she knows that means flatline. And she knows that's my room. So she rushes to the door. And the nurse says, I'm sorry, you can't come in. This is really serious. And she said, look, I was there when he came in this world. If he's leaving this world right now, I'm going to be in that room. And so she led her in the room. And they were doing the flat. They were doing the, uh, I was flatline. They were doing the compressions, the CPR, and also the electric shock paddles. My body was bouncing up and down, but I wasn't responding. I was out, I was flatlined. And so my mom, you know, my mom started to crumble. It's, it's one thing to lose a child. It's another thing to be there three feet away when it's happening. And at the same time, my dad was outside with my brother and this doctor came out and said to another doctor in front of my brother, not knowing it was my brother, hey, we lost this guy. He's gone. And so my brother pushes my dad in the room saying, you need to be there with mom. And my dad was crying so loudly when he came in that my mom kind of turned away from me to him to say like, Gary, you got to be quieter. They're going to kick us out of this room. And when she did that, she said she saw something she'd never seen before in a hospital. She said every nurse and every staff member and every doctor in the ICU had just gravitated outside the window and there was 40 of them and they looked like this silent church choir just sending in this positive energy. And she was so moved by these people that were sending in love to this person that they didn't even know. It was like this transformational experience for her and filled her up with strength. And she turned back and she started coaching me. She said, Matthew David Poulsen, these people are fighting to save your life. They're fighting so hard, but you're not fighting hard enough. You need to fight harder. You need to show them you're a fighter. These people are fighting to save your life. And they said it was a really surreal experience because here's this 65-year-old mom in this room. Like, no one's ever supposed to be in these rooms outside of the doctors. And because, you know, and the, and the flatline went on for four and a half minutes, which is a really long time. They don't usually keep fighting. You lose oxygen to your brain after 20 seconds. Um, but because she kept fighting, they kept fighting. And, but at one point, you know, she explained like, or it started to, you know, go through her head. Like, I'm going to, like, I can't believe I'm going to lose him. 
Like, and if I lose him, I'm probably gonna lose my husband and the house is happening. You know, her mind went there. And then right as she was doing that, the, the main doctor shook his head as if to say, this is, this is done. And so he kind of pulled away and she said, no, please, like, don't, don't call it. And right as she said that, he turned back and he looked down and he said, wait a second, I think we have a pulse. And then kind of as he said that, the whole room kind of like went like silent and just kind of eyes open. And then all of a sudden I just popped up and then looked up and I saw this whole room just staring at me and I didn't know where I was. And then I saw my mom and then I saw my dad and I, and I was on my side and I just kind of slowly lifted my right arm and gave a thumbs up. Wow. That has to be one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard told to me. Um, that's, that's amazing. So, like, how has that impacted you as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as somebody that, you know, every day you're, you're obviously taking, you know, with much more thought than ever, Right, because I, th I think sometimes it's easy to forget this kind of stuff. People don't really talk about death much. People don't really talk about these kinds of things of what happens at the end. Yeah, um, you know, it's one of those things where I'm still figuring that out. Like they, people expect you have these moments and then you just have this epiphany and everything is clear. Um, what I will say, it's, there's a couple of things it's taught me. One is that nothing is as bad as the fear of it. Right. So we, sp we spend so much time, you know, projecting out what could go wrong in our lives. Right. We have these incredible imaginations that when we're kids, we use our imagination to think about what's possible. And when we're adults, we, we tend to use our imaginations to think about what could go wrong. And so we create these like crazy narratives and we have all this fear of what it could be. And probably one of the biggest ones is dying. And so I had a fear of dying and then then I died and it was amazing. It was wonderful. It was like it changed my life. And so, I don't know, you realize even something that's as extreme as that, like you, you bring that down to the daily basis of, you know, things we worry about with our business or, or, you know, we project out and it's not to say you shouldn't be concerned about the long term, but I used to like always think, Oh, wow. If like this goes under, then in our early years, like if this goes under, then, all those people who work for us are going to lose their jobs and like they lose their jobs. It's going to hurt their family. And I'm, I'm going to be responsible for that. And I'm also like my, I'm not gonna be able to help my family and like what's going to happen to them. And I would just take out all these, like, you know, all these stories in my mind. And like, that wasn't really that helpful. That didn't, you know, that didn't do anything. So you realize like nothing as bad as the fear of it. And so when you realize that, then you start to think, okay, well, well the opposite of fear or the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of, love is fear. So if you get rid of that space for fear, you can spend a more time, a lot more time putting love out in the world. Right. You can, you can, you can, so I just like, I used to spend so much time like comparing myself to people or projecting what people, other people thought or um, worrying about things. And I just don't do that. You know, I'm, it's not totally gone, but I just don't do that at the same level. So you, you know, and you don't have to have a near death experience to realize that oh, you'd like literally just breathing just deep breaths like into your belly can like totally help those things go away. Just like it's, you know, our body's designed to actually do that. Um, and then the last thing is like, you know, it just makes me, what I believe is possible in the world is fundamentally changed. You know, I was never a person who believed 
in a higher consciousness or a higher power. I didn't, I didn't, or past life or any of this. I didn't believe in any of that stuff. I'd hear people tell near death experiences like, well, that's something that went on their brain, or maybe they're making that up. And even when it happened to me, like for the first year, I spent, I talked to all these journalists and neuroscientists and all these people kind of like, cause I had this clear like vision of coming back to the light and what that experience was like. And, and I almost tried to disprove that for myself, but the more I learned, the more I believe it. And so what that means is like, we all have this kind of superpower that is available that we're not accessing, which is kind of a greater consciousness. You can tap into other pieces of information, other energy that once you do that, the scope of your problem seems so much smaller because you realize like there's a lot more going on than like what we've kind of created in our world. And there's not, there's now a lot more neuroscience and physics to back that up. So I know it was a really long answer, but I would say realizing that you can get to the other side of fear was number one, two, replacing that fear with love, was number two and three is realizing that there's so much more possible than we ever realized and we can tap into that yeah no look thank you so much for being so open and honest matt like don't don't worry about long long-winded answers or anything at all that was that was in, that was like like i said i speak to a lot of people i've never said this before that is one of the most incredible stories i've ever heard and i'm curious kind of just tying that back into you know business and stuff like that like Omaze has grown revenue uh, by over 500% in the last 18 months, but headcount by only 10%. I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into that. Do you think that after this happened, you worked harder, you worked smarter? Like, yeah, I'm just curious. Worked smarter. You know, like a, a lot of that time I told you about was, was wasted in my own head. Um, that went away. That saved a lot of time. We spent so much time thinking about like what others think and, and others. So that was part of it, like just mentally, but I mean like very tactically or strategically really like we, we, it caused me to change the, the business um, in ways that I don't think I would have if that hadn't happened. And so what I mean by that is, so we, you know, for the first six years, we were highly focused on celebrity experiences and it was going well. And then, you know, this happened and I was, out of the office for two months. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a long time, but as your listeners are sure many of them are entrepreneurs and they know what it's like to be heads down 24 seven on something. So I was heads down 24 seven for six years. And so, you know, when you go away for two months after that, and you're not even allowed to talk to anybody at the company. I didn't even have a phone, you know, that's a, like in the end of time, it feels like a big change. And so when I came back, you know, you notice some things that you wouldn't, I've noticed and, or there's certain things that like you tolerated before. Cause like you just did on a daily basis. So when you step back, you're like, wait, wait a second, you know, why are we doing that? Um, and so for us, it was just the realization that I, I realized I was only on this planet cause people sent me love and optimism. You know, it was a miracle that they saved me. And I wanted to put as much of that back out in the world as I could. And I know everyone in Omaze had that same desire but there was a limit to how big we were going to do be doing celebrity stuff and just celebrity stuff because we didn't control our own destiny. And six months before I left, we had done this campaign with Daniel Craig where you got to go to New York, got to go to the Aston Martin track. You got to ride around in one of a kind Aston Martin. And then you got to keep the Aston Martin and it was supposed to raise 300,000 and it raised 2.1 million. And halfway through our marketing team was really smart. And they said, what if there's no Daniel Craig? What if it's just the car? And that performed really well. 
So we then decided to take a leap to go buy a $250,000 McLaren and offer it with just Omaze distribution, no talent. And that coincidentally launched the day before I unexpectedly went into the hospital. And so when I came back and I was sitting down with our CFO, Nina, and we were talking about the shared desire to create more impact. And, and I was even talking about whether I should continue to be the CEO, you know, because I hadn't figured out what that looked like in a maze. And, um, and uh, I said, or, you know, by the way, whatever happened with uh, McLaren, like did, you know, did, uh, did it raise the 500,000? She said it raised 1.9 million. I was like, oh, wow, that changes everything. So we, we announced the company a month later. We are, uh, we're going to go from doing 300 celebrity experiences a year to 50. Uh, we had a merchandise business that was doing well, cut that. We had a brand business, agency type business that was doing well, cut that. Um, we said we're going all in on what we call Omaze owned, which was the, you know, McLaren or Erase Your Student Debt or Ride Around in Custom Sprinter Van. And the business just exploded. As you said before, you know, revenue has grown 500% with only increasing headcount 10%. Um, and, you know, we're doing all these new categories now and it's really taking off. And, you know, I think another lesson of all this is like death is your best friend, you know, like carry it around as a travel companion. Um, and not just, you know, in that it clarifies you and helps you be present when you realize like, I don't have that much time here. Um, but also like just embracing like, I was probably unwilling to let go of just the celebrity version of what we did, you know, and may not have ever done that if this had not happened to me because I loved it. And so I wasn't willing to let that death happen, you know, and, and if we had stayed with just the celebrity vision, we would have, we would have, you know, 10 months later when COVID came, we would have been done. We would have been out of business, but as instead we're thriving. So I think that's a lesson too. Hmm. I was furiously taking notes. A few things I'd like to pick out of that just out of curiosity was this idea that you came back, obviously you had your COO, you had your co-founder and they're still kind of, you know, working things and moving, but it sounds like um, this near-death experience has been a bit of a catalyst to kind of put things into perspective. Even like, you know, when you take a good holiday from, from work, and it's just like, you just see things so much differently. Like it really helps you clear your mind and really you know, gather your thoughts a bit more clearly because you can they can get really cloudy when you're just in the grind working just crazy, just crazy, just go, 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 go. And that's why I'm a big fan of holidays now. I think I perform way better if I take, you know, a couple of weeks off a year just not thinking about the business because sometimes you can just get caught up and just move from this to this to this to this and you just got to stop sometimes and take stock and, and really look at things and I think that's really what happened which kind of what you're saying led to a simple more simplified model which I think is interesting because often that's how companies do end up scaling once they have traction is they slow down to speed up and they double down on the things that are working and there might be something there that's you know, doing okay and has potential, but you're, it's an opportunity cost if you're not going all in on one thing. And it's much easier to market. It's much easier to have a clear message. It's much easier to speak to people if you just go all in on that one thing and even pull resources. Um, 
so that's a really interesting take around that simplified model. So yeah, I mean, focus is the price of greatness. Mm, so I'm I'm curious when it comes to that simplified model, um, like, would you be able to give kind of context around? Like you guys have you guys have given over 130 million dollars to charity to date. Um, how do you guys operate as as a business? Is is it just the percentage of you take a you know a, I guess running running the operational fee that is part of running these? So we have two sides of the business, right? We have the celebrity side and we have the prize side. Well, the first thing I'll say is we have a philosophy in the charity space that is maybe controversial, um, but I think is what is needed, is that we are focused on not the percentages that the charities get, but the dollars that the charities get. Um, we believe that the charity space has been held down in the past because it's not allowed to hire great people. It's not allowed to invest in marketing. Any of the things that for-profit companies do to scale, you're not allowed to do in the charity space. So that's why, I mean, I came from the nonprofit space for a decade. And so part of what we're doing is creating those services for charities that like the social and you know, antiquated social mornings don't allow them to do for themselves. So with that in mind, we believe in building a company that is very profitable, that doesn't trade off doing good and being rewarded for it because we think that's what's needed for this space to actually have the impact that it, it needs to have. Um, so with all that preamble, our model is, on the celebrity side of the business, 60% of the gross donations go to the charity. So let's say we raise a million dollars to uh, you know to meet George and Amal at their house when they come. So a million dollars comes in, $600,000 goes to the charity. We have $250,000 in marketing costs to raise that million dollars and, and pricing costs. So flying out and meeting George and Amal and all that, that's a small part of it. Most of it is is contact and then in just social um, marketing, Instagram, Facebook, primarily um, Google affiliate influencer to a degree. So that's how we drive it. And then, so that means then there's $150,000 or 15% left, left for amaze. Um, so that's the, on the celebrity side, on the prize side, it's a different model. So let's say on a million, when we first started a million dollar camp, we do a million dollar campaign with a Lamborghini. And so it was $400,000 all the way in for the car. Plus we cover the taxes for the winner. We ship it to them. So like our winners never have any cost. Um, so, cause we don't want someone to win and not be able to afford to actually have the prize, you know, so they get, they get all that plus gas for two years. So with the uh, Lamborghini, $400,000 in cost, then marketing is more expensive because we don't have the talent promoting it through their channel. So there's another $300,000 in marketing. And then what's left over 300,000, we said to the charities, all right, 15% is guaranteed to go to you and we will have the rest. Sometimes that'll be less than 15% for us because we may lose money in the car, but as we get better, it'll be more um, that will accrue back to us. But that's what we get for taking the risks. And for you guys, you're just getting checks sent to you. So it's a great deal. And they love it. We have a hundred percent repeat rate with our charity partners. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches 
only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. When it comes to marketing though, if you have so many people, because like I've seen your guys' ads and I was going to ask around paid acquisition, like how do you work out that budget around what you're prepared to pay for an entry? You would have a large database of people to market to each like event you would have, right? A promotion. Yeah. I mean, we get more efficient, but like we're pushing these things out around the world and and we only market if it's going to come back profitably for the charity, right? Profitably for us. So we're, we're not losing money on the marketing and we're building up that customer base so that more and more we can do more and more for experience, right? So, you know, our average raise per experience has gone up dramatically in 2018, it was one hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. Two thousand twenty was nine hundred and one thousand. Yeah, got you. Okay, interesting. But categorically, though, over time, the bigger the community you guys build in a maze, the the less you should have to spend on marketing, and the more profitable you will be as a business, and the more money you should be able to raise for the charity. Hypothetically, that's right. That's right. And we're also bringing on stuff for the charity, like matching donations so we're going to start having brands and foundations and others that are going to match every dollar that a customer gives on a maze we won't take a cent of that that's a pure pass through to the charity so instead of a dollar you know instead of 60 cents of every dollar going to the charity or 15 cents of every dollar going to the charity there'll be a dollar 60 or a dollar 15 so that actually make even greater impact and then it'll just be a service we have for our charity partners, but we don't we don't take any money from. Yeah, that's amazing. Now I love, I find these models quite fascinating, and I'm a big fan of them. Like, um, eventually, I want to do something cool like this for Founder, where, you know, for every purchase, like something happens somewhere. So it it, it just gives the it just it just gives the work that you're doing so much more leverage in a purposeful way, and it's something I'm really passionate about. I think it's so cool. So. I'm curious around the talent side because um, it's impressive, you know, like the the people and the talent that you guys work with. And uh, I think that's a big, big driver of brand for you guys and, and trust. Um, that's how, you know, the first time I saw you guys actually wasn't from, uh, you know, talent promoting it, but it was actually from an ad. Um, so I'm curious how how do you like work with all this exceptional talent and like for anybody that's watching this right now that perhaps wants to work with incredible talent in their in their market or their niche that they're looking to serve because that can be a very very powerful tool to build brand equity and trust for your brand what would you say and how would you recommend someone get started is it just knocking down as many doors as possible and just never giving up or like what, or is it friends of friends or um, what, did you obviously had a pretty good leg up for what, what you were doing previously before you started a maze. 
well, you know, everything is hustle and knocking down doors. So in anything you're doing, you got to do that, um, especially with talent. You know, talent has gotten really sophisticated in terms of understanding the reach that they can create. And that's why you're seeing all these DDC companies where, you know, talent has massive ownership stakes and they've done phenomenally well. You know, George Clooney and Casamigos, Ryan Reynolds and Aviator Gin, you know, Aaron Paul and Ryan Cranston's Dos Hombres Mezcal. So there's obviously a lot of, you know, Rocks Terramana, there's a lot in that space. But then you look at what what Rihanna has done with her DDC, with Ky- you know, with Kylie. Like, yeah, they're all doing it basically. They're basically all, all very, very highly influential talent, talent, like well-known celebrities, influencers, whatnot. They are all working with someone or a company or going their own way and, and creating products or services. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what I was saying, so I was saying, so like that, that, that game has changed in the last five years, 10 years, because they're seeing how much money can be made in that way. They're seeing like, oh, this is a great way to leverage these audiences that have built. So if you are going to go to talent, you've got to be really thoughtful about that. And you got to be prepared to really bring them into the fold and really do the calculation of, is this person, as a result of this person owning 5% or 10% of my company, am I going to get that much additional leverage? You know, some people like to partner with talent because it's sexy, but doesn't necessarily like the numbers don't work out. Um, and so, and these talent are sophisticated. They're, they're good business people. They're entrepreneurs. Like you have to be really entrepreneurial to be successful in entertainment or sports or music. And so, you know, I would say be really thoughtful, have a really clear articulation of why this person would be a good partner, run the numbers for yourself of why they would be a good partner. Um, and then once you do that, you can figure out how to get to them, you know, through their agents or their managers or like the, there's ways like they'll, they'll, if you've got a good articulation of how this can be a successful partnership for them, like they'll listen and, you know, and you just got to hustle to find your way into that. And Eight, nine years later, are you still doing talent stuff and pitching or you have a dedicated team, like a talent relations team? How big is that team? I'm curious. Me personally, am I doing talent pitching? Uh, I'm not anymore. We do have a team. We have a three-person team. Um, They're excellent. And, you know, they're one's focused on um, entertainment, one's focused on music, one's focused on sports. And they've got amazing relationships. They've been in Amaze for a while. They've worked with a lot of people. And so, you know, we're in a place now where we've been, we've been able to drive a lot of value for talent, right? And, and so they want to keep coming back and they've been able to drive a lot of value for us. And um, so it's a good place. And we don't, we don't do as much as anymore as we used to either. But I guess, yeah, you guys would have some solid case studies. So it would be easier than ever to like, you know, open doors and, and actually show, okay, this is how it works and this is how it's a win-win. Yeah, I mean, at this point we've done, you know, I think 97% of talent fundraising is done on a maze. We've got people like Matt Damon or Kristen Bell or Shelley Throne or John Stewart or Idris Elba that have done anywhere from eight to 20 Amazes, you know, so it's a pretty well-run machine. But I mean, that we've been at it for nine years. Yeah, no, it's crazy. So, um, what about some of the early ones? Would you be able to tell us some stories? Anything crazy? Like, it's not just sending something in the mail or something like kind of crazy, kind of swag box or anything like like like. What's the craziest thing in the early days? Because 
Because when you're a new brand, no one's heard of you, and you are trying to work with talent, it is not easy. And I'm talking from experience. Yeah, it's it definitely isn't. No, set, sending stuff in the mail, I would save yourself that time. That that, that will never work. What's the crazy? We had a lot of crazy ones. Um, you know, we struggled our first year and a half almost. Like we were not doing well, and we were almost out of money. Most we'd raised on an experience was eighteen thousand dollars, and this company came in that was a competitor of us, and they'd done one with Samuel Jackson, and it had raised one hundred and eighty thousand. And that like they might as well have raised a billion dollars in our mind. It was so, like we just couldn't even contemplate how they did that. And and so we um, we had a we only had a month left of cash, and we had worked with Brian Cranston's team to do something around the, the finale or the final season of Breaking Bad. And, and he had agreed to do it. And we thought, okay, this is our, this is going to be our breakout. This is going to be our case study. People love Breaking Bad. Brian's an amazing guy. And then we got a call from the woman who ran uh, his you know, charitable work. And she said, I'm sorry, but Brian has decided to go with this other company um, because, you know, they just, they raised so much more than you guys. And we're like, but we had, you know, but we were going to do this. And like, this is our thing. She's like, I'm, so, I'm really sorry. And I was like, well, like, and we were, we were running out of time, you know, and she's like, this decision has to be made this weekend. I was like, well, where is he? Where is he? Where is he right now? Like, and, and she said, he's, well, he's going to this charity event. So we, she, we were close. So I found out what the charity event was. And me and my co-founder went to the charity event and we snuck in. And it was at this person's house and we, and we went in and we found Brian and we walked up to him and said, Hey, Brian, we're Matt and Ryan from Amaze. We've never, we, we had talked on the phone, but we'd never met. And we said, you know, um, we had heard that, that you've decided to go with this other company. And, um, you know, we just want to say like, we, we had this plan and we really want to do this with you. And he's like, I'm sorry, guys, it's not personal, but my, you know, the point of this is to raise as much money for the charity as possible. And these guys said that they can raise 200,000. And I said, well, we can raise 250000 And he said, what's the most you've ever raised? And I said, 18000 And he's like, well, how are you, <laughs> you going to do that? And I said, Brian, you know what it's like to be at the beginning of your career where you're just, it's all, you, you haven't figured it out, but you know that you just have the will. You had to fight to become the actor that you are. You had to fight to get some of those jobs. There was areas when it looked like you weren't going to make it, but you kept going. Well, that's us. Like we, this is everything for us and we will do everything it takes to make this success. We'll, we'll come up with the most creative ideas. Um, we pitched them this idea we had about like riding up to the finale in a Winnebago and, and letting smoke. If you know, breaking bad, there's like smoke from the meth that comes out of the Winnebago. We're like, we'll do that. And he could just see it in our eyes. You know, I don't know if it was like, just he believed or he's just being a pity, but he said, all right, let's do this. And so we did that with Brian and it raised 300,000. And then he introduced us to Aaron Paul and we did something about the final episode of Breaking Bad and that raised 1.7 million. And then we were on the map. Yeah, wow. That, that's a kill. I knew you'd have some of those. You're a really good storyteller. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so look, conscious of your time, we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, I've got something here that I, I have to ask you about um, because you're a very honest person and, and you're very real with like what it means you know to 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 be a founder and and build a business and it's definitely not easy and and you know there's ups and downs 
you had to let go of 25% of your workforce just three, three years in to closing a Series B. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we had just closed a Series A. And, you know, our modeling our business and doing the accounting for our business is complicated. And, you know, we, that was not my background, even though it's Wharton, I should And, you know, and the person we hired was amazing, but he was doing a ton of different things and just wasn't necessarily calculating um, how much, you know, how much was owed to the, to the charities and what timing. And so realized that like we had less cash than we thought, significantly less. And we brought a new CFO in at the same time. And she's the one who said like, look, this has got to change. You know, we can't, this isn't sustainable. Um, and so we, you know, made the decision that in order to keep it going, we had to let go 25% of people. And it was really hard because we were, you know, we were such a family. We'd overcome some of those obstacles at the beginning. We'd started to get a lot of progress. And I just felt like, you know, it was my fault. And I remember like going and telling, you know, we did like, we, we spent a ton of time thinking through like, how do we do this and how do we do this in a way that enables us to maintain our culture and maintain trust. And, you know, cause I let people go matters a lot. I think, you know, a lot of companies, they don't take a lot of time to realize that there's a human being on the other side of that and what that can mean for this person's life. And, and so we, you know, we structured in a way where, I did it individually talking to everybody and, and my co-founder did it. And, and, you know, we set them up with more severance than we probably should have at the time, but we just felt like we, we had to do what we could. And we, and we explained to the company, like we didn't try to hide it. We explained very honestly, like where we had gone wrong to everybody. We're like, this is, this is what we did. This is our fault. Like we, we messed up bad. Um, this is how we're fixing it. And, we can't t- promise that we have that perfect, but we can promise that we'll always let you know that where we stand with this. And so, and, and so we did that. I mean, it took a, it was a big morale hit at the time and lasted for a while. And we ended up losing some more people as a result, but you know, most people ended up staying. Um, and I think they did because we took the time to really like, they could tell we, we really cared. We were really transparent about the mistakes we made. And they just believe that if other things, bad news were coming, we would do that. And so, you know, so that's, that's what we did. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Because, uh, yeah, people don't always talk about these kinds of things. That's why one of my favorite books is um, The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben yeah. Horowitz. Incredible book, yeah. right? And, and like, yeah, these are things that people don't talk about. So how, what else did you do to preserve the culture during that time period or try? You know, I think a lot of a culture was built before that. In that from very early days, we spent a lot on building our culture. The first couple of hires we made, I was a terrible manager, just awful. And I thought I would be good. I thought like, I love people and I care, and you know, know how to, think I know how to communicate. And I remember being in business school and there was like all these classes on managing people at work. And I was like, I don't need to take those. Like, I know how to do that. And I did not, I was terrible. I never had a boss and I just, um, I thought everybody wanted to work the same way that I did. And that was just a big mistake. Um, so we kind of had a little bit of a toxic culture at the beginning. And then we had to kind of, you know, move on from people even then. And so then we went back and we're like, really, like when we were eight people, we really invested deeply in like, what are the foundational elements of our culture? We do, we do virtues instead of values. Because values are what people, 
believe and virtues are what people do. And it doesn't matter what you believe, it matters what you do. Took that from Ben Horowitz also. And so we, we talked, we, we were really methodical, methodical about here's the behaviors um, that we want to model. This is how you make decisions. And, you know, because your brand is, your, your culture is just an expression of your behaviors and your brand is just an expression of your culture. And so, and we wanted to build a brand that we thought could touch people around the world and scale optimism. And so you have to build that from foundationally from the behaviors of the early people. So we spent a lot of time on that. And so I think that stuff, the investment we had made in that helped us get through that, right? Because we lived, we upheld those virtues. And, you know, and then we've continued to iterate that as we've gone on in a maze and um, as we kind of did a evolution of the business. Um, but that's, and we, you know, we reinforced them. We celebrate them. We, at every team meeting, we talk about how people are living or not living up to those. They're checking on one-on-ones. And that, that like, you know, like that investment it's really hard to do when you're like just struggling to get by and you feel like I should be focused on strategy or operations or, or revenue, but people is everything. You know, that is part of our strategy. Yeah. I love it. I agree. Um, I think it says a lot about a company. If every person in your organization can off the top of their head, if they're put on the spot, name your company's core values or, or core virtues. I think I think that says a lot about a company. Um, so, look, mindful of your time, we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, two last questions. One, when it comes to Amaze um, and and just everything you've gone through in, in life, Matt, I'd just love to know kind of any final words of wisdom you'd like to share. And then two, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? I'm on Twitter at Matt Paulson, Instagram at Matt Paulson, P-O-H-L-S-O-N. Um, LinkedIn is probably my best source or most consistent. Again, Matt Paulson. Um, I think I would leave with two pieces of advice that maybe are counterintuitive that I took a while to figure out. One is, it's kind of what you were saying earlier about holidays, but when you don't know what to do, do nothing. You know, sometimes when you have really big decisions, you know, we, we, there's this, there's this kind of like belief in startups that if you're not moving constantly in perpetual motion, then you're, you're dying. Like you're either, you're either moving or you're dying. And so we're always scrambling and we feel anxious if we're not working on our thing. Like, like, you know, if we're not sleeping, we should be working on our startup and it does require an incredible amount of hustle, but there's also sometimes you reach huge decisions that are inflection point decisions in the company that don't become better just by spending more time thinking about them or, you know, and sometimes, and so what you'll do is because you want to be proactive, you'll go talk to everybody. You'll get opinions of 15 different people. And I've definitely gotten so many opinions from people I would trust that are like respected people have achieved a lot, but they'll end up countering each other inevitably. And, And then I've gotten so many of the opinions that, it ends up drowning out my own voice. And so that's where doing nothing comes in. If you can get to, you know, the, the gut is really powerful. Like a lot of times, like even the, some of the best CEOs, like even Jeff Bezos talks about the fact that like he makes a lot of decisions emotionally. The former head of Sony talked about the way he made decisions is he would eat them. He would let them process through. And there's a lot of data. There's a lot of, there's neurons in your gut. There's neurons in your heart. There's, you know, so there's, there's information that's coming through outside of your brain that like you should listen to. And, but again, it can get noisy. So back to the point of doing, you know, when you don't know what to do, do nothing. 
by stepping back and doing whatever it takes for you to get still, whether that's meditation, which is what I do, um, breathing exercises, listening to music, working out, whatever, whatever, whatever that is for you, going back to that, when you, when you remove the noise, then you can get back to that initial intuition that you had around the decision. Um, and so that's been super helpful for me. The last one I would say is like, be a best friend to yourself. You know, we're like, especially after we can be so hard on ourselves and we can spend time comparing ourselves to others. It's so hard to like not look around and feel like everyone else is succeeding. Um, and then you end up beating yourself up and you say things to yourself that if like someone else said to you, you would not be friends with that person. Right. But we let our brain say stuff. So maybe flip that paradigm, realize that maybe that's not the most helpful, even though maybe beating yourself up helped you in other points of your life. Maybe that's not the most helpful at this point. Um, it's certainly a realization for me. Um, so those are the two things. When you don't know what to do, do nothing and be a best friend to yourself. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, go to amazeomaze.com. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.